Welcome to Embers and Wind. Are you feeling a calling to serve? What if answering this calling unleashes from deep within you leadership potential? I'm your podcast host, Keith Weedman. Blended three decades experience with knowledge from multiple disciplines to unleash hidden potential in others. In this weekly podcast, my distinguished guests and I will share what fuels us and how we serve. You will feel a gentle wind on the embers of service that glow within you. You will receive kindling for your capabilities and knowledge to build skills. You can utilize this gentle wind to ignite the kindling. You will be guided to do this for people you lead and serve. You can apply what you learn with people you love. Get ready to feel the gentle wind. Today's guest has an undergraduate degree in anthropology. He's a skilled Toastmaster and has delivered a TEDx talk. He established his keynote speaking business in 2011 about dwarfism, communication, and success, where he brings humor to educational keynotes on diversity and inclusion. He works full-time as a teacher for BCSC, Bartholomew's Consolidated School Corporation, where he teaches technology education in a STEM lab that provides hands-on learning. He has worked at Cummins, Inc., providing technical education for communities as a member of Cummins' corporate responsibility team. For the past five years, he has served as a volunteer tour guide for the Bartholomew Consolidated School Foundation. Please join me in welcoming Ethan Crow as our special guest. His topic, dwarfism, diversity, and inclusion. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you, Keith. It's great to be here. How does your undergraduate degree in anthropology relate to the, your work that you do today? I never thought anthropology would relate to the work that I do today, but when you look at what the study is, it's the study of people and how people came to be on this planet and how they live on this planet and the history and the cultures that we that we have all over the globe. So having that degree gives me a, a fundamental knowledge of how people work and how we succeed and how we communicate. So in the end, it has been a very helpful degree uh, and especially with um, the importance of education in all of those uh, cultures. When and how did you discover your passion for teaching? Uh, I've always been asked about why I'm different and why I'm short or why I'm little. And I took that time when I was younger to explain it. I had a very easy explanation about what the difference between dwarfism was and what the difference between pituitary dwarfism was. So I knew I was good at educating. I knew I could capture somebody's attention. And it was early on when I realized that I could teach people how to kind of break free or play games or those kinds of things that really got my passion for education going. And anytime I got in front of a group of people, I always felt really comfortable talking to them. And then I found out that I was most comfortable talking in front of a group of people when I was educating them about something. So it's been at least, that was probably around my early 20s. So that's what, 25 years ago now, something around yes. there. So it's been a long Thank time. You. And then what about Toastmaster? When did Toastmasters pop into your life? Toastmasters popped into my life first thing in, uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey, 
Uh, my wife and I were living there before we had kids uh, so that I could work in and out of New York. And we, I ended up in a club in Toastmasters and really enjoyed my time there. That is when I was actually working on more of my speeches, becoming a competent Toastmaster. Uh, and then work took me away from it, obviously, like it does for so many of us. Uh, and then I, um, I rediscovered Toastmasters back here uh, in Columbus, Indiana, and ended up at uh, a club in, at Cummins. When I was working at Cummins, there was a corporate Toastmasters club there. And so I went back at that point to kind of practice uh, doing my public, my speeches again, or doing speeches again, and then also to help other people get better. Thank you. And tell us more about your work at Commons and Corporate Responsibility. I joined Corporate Responsibility as an associate with the, the, tech, ed, the tech Ed program. And so technical education for communities was what we did. And so we looked at uh, uh, skilling up folks who may or may not have been on a college path. And so we had multiple sites around the globe that we worked with that dealt with vocational uh, training. So we, we provided engines to them. We provided tools so that the, the teachers on the ground in these countries could then take what we gave them and offer um, an opportunity to these youth to get trained as a diesel technician or uh, whatever, whatever the need they had in that area. And then because it was corporate responsibility, a lot of people thought, well, you're just creating Cummins employees. You know, if they go through this Cummins program, then you're going to just hire them when they're done. But because it was our corporate responsibility program, we agreed to only take 20% of the employee of the, the kids that came through the program so that it remained a corporate responsibility. It was for the betterment of the community. Uh, so that's essentially what we did. Uh, so I was in charge of trying to get engines all over the globe, which is not easy to do. Um, <laughs> but I met a lot of wonderful people in a lot of wonderful countries and uh, a lot of hardworking people that care very much for not only the company they worked for, but for educating the youth of their communities. So that was a really neat opportunity. It sounds like a very special opportunity. Yeah, it was. You are somebody who moved from Cummins to become a full-time teacher for BCSC, the Bartholomew Consolidated School Corporation. Tell us about that transition and your motivation. Uh, well, that was, uh, was kind of easy. Uh, so I was, I was working at a, as a director of the school foundation and I had, uh, that it was a part-time job. So I had no benefits. I had no retirement income. I had none of that. And then a job at Cummins came up. And so I went and did that Cummins job. And then one night I was up late working creatively, like you probably do, like a lot of people do, or I was at a creative point in my day. And I, I started asking myself those reflective questions that we do sometimes of essentially, what am I doing with my life? Uh, and I asked myself, why am I not teaching? Why am I doing this job where I sit there in a corporate office building and watch the sun go by my window and not really changing the world. I mean, changing the world kind of, but in a very indirect way. Um, and I still had connections with the school corporation. So I called the, uh, I called the director of secondary education and asked him to lunch. And then I called another friend of mine who is the chair of the social studies department at East High School here and I had lunch with him. Uh, and then, you know, I, I just started 
reconnecting with everyone I knew in education and made them aware that I wanted to come back to teaching. I applied for one job. I didn't get it. Uh, I was underqualified and they hired someone which was better for the students. Uh, there was another opening. I applied for that. I didn't get that job uh, because there was another person who was more well qualified to do that. And then as the fates would have it, which people may or may not believe in, some people call it God or some people, universe, fate, whatever, stepped in and hired that person away to do a different job and that left an opening for me to teach a subject I had no knowledge of, but I was hired on an emergency permit. Uh, and the rest of now, of course, is history because I've got my license now in tech, tech ed and I'll be doing it again this year. So would it be fair to say that you now have the skills that you lacked once? Uh, I do. Um, I was also given the opportunity to rewrite a lot of the curriculum that had been tech ed. And I came up with a, 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 some new ideas that I thought the kids might really enjoy. And so in that intro, you read about it being a STEM lab sort of thing with hands-on uh, design experiments. Uh, that's generally what we do. And that wasn't what was done before. Uh, it was all modules based off a computer. So anyway, I, I took what knowledge and skill set I had and kind of applied it and rewrote it. And, uh, but I did gain some, yeah, I did gain some technical knowledge that I, I didn't have before. And now I do. Yeah. So I think it'd helped. be fair to say that perhaps Cummins influenced BCSC in the role you do now. I did. It did. It, uh, it certainly, it certainly is, um, college is not for every student. Uh, and the way we teach and the way we have a lot of things set up says that it should be. It says that that's what you should go do. But a lot of students would benefit from the idea that they can go become successful doing something that they may be better at doing than academic uh, studies like they do in college. And so that is uh, something that definitely came out of Cummins and my time there. Oh. You've put a lot of hours in in Toastmasters. How many different years have you been involved in Toastmasters? Uh, I uh, probably five. I would say probably two in New Jersey and then three when I was at Cummins. So yeah, I have spent a lot of hours in there. I've done a lot of the 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 speeches that you go through in those workbooks. They've they've redone Toastmasters now, so it's something else completely. And then last year, almost a year and a half ago now. Uh, my friend, uh, my friend Anthony Blair and I sort of challenged each other to see what we could do in Toastmasters. And that put us in, there was a speaking contest. Uh, and I ended up writing a speech that did pretty well uh, for a few rounds in Toastmasters, which was great. And then I lost out to someone who had really good energy and really, uh, who was really enthusiastic about her speech, which was interesting because she beat the formulaic one that the guy had probably watched off the national championship of Toastmasters. So anyway, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun in that space. And then, and giving evaluations is great because you want to give people honest evaluations. And then somehow you wound up on a TEDx stage. Yeah. Yeah. That was part of that challenge that Anthony and I had made to each other. We wanted to see what we could do with public speaking and so he was really good about finding opportunities to go try things out. And one of them was this open pitch night they had for a TEDx talk. And so we went over to Bloomington, Indiana, 
and went to the library and we gave open pitches and that decided that I was going to go do a TEDx talk, which was great. Uh, and it launched it. We did the event right before COVID uh, shut everything down in March of 2020. So the theater was quite empty. Uh, I mean, it wasn't as crowded as it could be. Everyone was getting a little antsy uh, about going out in public and doing what we wanted to do. So anyway, uh, but now it's a legacy that sort of lives on digitally. I can always say like, hey, I, there it is. I did that, which is neat because I, I memorizing an 18 minute speech was incredibly difficult for me. And uh, and I think I pulled off most of it, uh, especially the the ending was what I wanted to get right. And I got that right. So anyway. Excellent. Yeah. And the title of your TED, TEDx talk was A Cure for Chondrophobia. Right, which no one knows what that is, as you and well, I talked earlier. Would you please explain what that is? So okay, yeah. So achondroplasia is the type of dwarfism I have. And so in my TEDx talk, I talk about achondrophobia, which is a made-up thing uh, because occasionally I'll meet people who are afraid of me because of what I am, not who I am, uh, just the dwarfism itself frightens people, uh, which is odd uh, when you bump into it or, or, or you run into it in actuality. There are people who assume that, that say they're afraid of me, which again is odd. So my talk was supposed to be a cure for that because, you know, if you watch me do it or if you meet me, then you'd be like, oh, I'm not afraid of achondroplasia anymore. I, the dwarfism is just a thing. And it also, Keith, it had another layer because of the genetic stuff that's coming and the genetic testing that people are doing and the ability that people may have in the future to alter their child, their young children or the, the preborn children um, so that they wouldn't have achondroplasia at all. Uh, and that's where we talk about the diversity and inclusion bit is that we might be one of these differences, these visible differences that people try and edit out or try and cure so that it doesn't exist anymore. And so I always try and talk about the value of uh, visible and invisible differences that you, you have and that I have and how that drives innovation, creativity and adaptation, so. And you've got to explain for somebody who's listening right now, what achondroplasia is. Okay, yeah, so achondroplasia is the most common type of dwarfism in the world. And it occurs uh, as a spontaneous genetic mutation uh, on the sixth chromosome, if you want to get really specific. Uh, none of my family has achondroplasia. That's, that's one of the things a lot of people think is that I have dwarfism somewhere in my family and that I inherited it. But that's not true. Again, 80% of people with achondroplasia come from average height parents, and there's no history of dwarfism in their family. So it is, uh, it's a spontaneous genetic mutation. Unfortunately, it only comes with the superpower of great communication skills. That's all I get. And then once, I, once it shows up, it then does become a dominant gene. So now I have a 50% chance of passing it on to my children. So once it shows up, then it's a dominant gene. But prior to being here, it didn't exist. So Keith, you or any of one of your listeners could actually have a child that would be born with achondroplasia and it's a one in 25,000 chance 
So it's a very rare birth defect, if you want to call it, or birth, uh, you know, however you want to call it. Um, that's is it is what it is. And uh, back in the day when I was born, it was it was unheard of. No one knew what it was. But now, of course, you know, there's there's reality television shows. There are lots of documentation about it. But still, it is a very overwhelming and very um, surprising. Uh, development in in what is two average height parents having a, a child with dwarfism or a baby with dwarfism because it's not expected. There's nothing that says, "Hey, your baby is going to have achondroplasia. You might as well get ready for it." You don't find out until either the baby's born because the the mother is expecting a healthy baby, and so they don't have any reason to look for anything, or if someone's really good on an ultrasound, they may see smaller bones, but they'd have to be really good because you know how small bones are in babies. They're tiny. Uh, and you're looking at it through like a little picture camera thing. Anyway, so that's what achondroplasia is. Again, most common type of dwarfism there is in the world. Full on seven out of 10 people with dwarfism around the globe have this type of dwarfism. And it's characterized by kind of like the bigger head, the shorter arms, shorter legs, uh, flatter face, kind of pushed in nose. Uh, and yeah, so everyone thinks we look the same anyway. So yeah, <laughs> I, I get asked if I'm the guy in Seymour. I get asked if, you know, anyway, that, but that's another story. You mentioned heightened communication skills. Tell us more about that. Okay, there, there's one story I have about that. And this is, I, I found this written down on a, in a piece of paper, on a piece of paper. So, you know, it must be true. Um, they did a study once between children with achondroplasia and children with this uh, thing called pseudoachondroplasia. So two totally different types of dwarfism uh, in babies. And they wanted to find out why the children with achondroplasia were so gregarious and outgoing and social and why the, the, the pseudoachondroplasia babies were introverted, quiet, uh, and they couldn't figure it out, obviously. They didn't, they didn't get it figured out. But, um, but most of the people I know with achondroplasia, the ones who have been raised right, the ones who've had the opportunities are very gregarious. They're great conversationalists. They're, um, they tend to be outgoing and funny people and, and can talk to just about anybody. And I, I address that in my TED talk. Uh, and that's like the one emotional part I have in my TED talk is, uh, you know, if we were, instead of getting rid of achondroplasia, instead of curing it uh, and making me taller uh, or making the babies taller, what if we dug into achondroplasia and tried to find out tried to find what that social characteristic was of them, of why we are gregarious and why we are good at communicating. I've been a good communicator my entire life, Keith. I've never been afraid of talking to strangers. And I don't know, I don't know if that's part of just being a crap, you know, being my family, or if it's part of being the achondroplasia, or if it's common, a combination of both. I really don't know, but I think there's an opportunity to look into that. But I've been... I've been lucky enough to listen to your TEDx talk. Actually, I've watched it more than once, and it was inspiring. Thanks. Plus, I've also had you as a guest to our Rotary Club, and mm -hmm. you provided a very powerful speech there, too. Tell us about your desire to educate as it relates to dwarfism and achondroplasia. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because you, you wonder why you're put on this world, right? Why are we here? And one of the reasons that I can think of that I'm here is because 
I like communicating. I like educating. I happen to have dwarfism. And so when you put those three things together, it seems that it would be a shame if I didn't educate and communicate about dwarfism to as many people as possible. And the reason being is so that we can be more accepting of differences. We can have more conversations and uh, more communication about being better than we already are. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, if there are people that are not willing to work with someone like me or don't want to, or are afraid or don't know how to talk to, you know, then, then that's going to impede the bottom line. That's going to result in a, a team that doesn't work or a, a part of a, or an organization that has problems. You know, you're going to, you're going to kind of burn things out or it's just, it's not what you're, we're going to, anybody needs that. And so when I get the opportunity to do that, it really just, it fills the well uh, for me because then I, I can see people like, oh, like I spent 45 minutes listening to that guy talk. And now I have like this whole different impression of what dwarfism really is because before, I mean, I thought it was like, whoa. Um, and actually one of the rotary talks I gave recently I give about, I talk about these myths of, of differences. It's, it's really the myths of disability. And so a lot of people see dwarfism as a disability because I'm not that tall and I can't reach things and boo-hoo, poor me. But um, one of them I talk about that uh, uh, one of the Rotarians related to was this myth of being superhuman is that, you know, whatever I do is more exceptional, more extraordinary than the average person because, well, he's got dwarfism. So whatever he's doing must be, you know, that must be twice as hard for him to do it because I know it's hard for me to do it. Um, but in reality, it's hard for everybody to do it. Uh, and so I, I really like breaking apart those, uh, those myths uh, in terms of, what people may have constructed in their head about dwarfism. And if I can, if I can pull that apart and re, re put it back together in a different way, then I'm doing something worthwhile. Thank you. And then your topic is dwarfism, diversity, and inclusion. And there's something about diversity and inclusion and dwarfism. There's, there's a gap there. There is. Um, it's, it's just one of those ones that's not seen or thought of uh, and, you know, I, I remember doing a, uh, an exercise once in the diversity and inclusion group that our school corporation had put together. And we had to write down all of the things that uh, the tribes that we were in, all of the tribes that we were in, you know, okay, everyone write down, I am, you know, I'm in the tribe of people who like to garden, I'm in the tribe. Of, and so then the, the moderator, the facilitator had everyone put their papers up on the wall. And, and then we were going to have to go look around the the room at and kind of mark down and cross out stuff that was on our trot that we were on tribes with but everyone in the room put their paper in a spot where i couldn't i couldn't see it they all everyone black white brown everyone had put their papers up so high that i couldn't see any of them and i thought this is hilarious i'm like you're we're all working on diversity and inclusion 
I'm one of your diversity. I'm one of the, part of the diversity, but I'm like, but I'm completely excluded at this point. And I'm like, and we're in a group. And so, so it's just one of those ones that that's uh, really hard to, for people to wrap their head around. And do I have time to give one more example? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I used to work for this giant fortune, like 150 company that I won't name, but I, I, I worked there. And they had done, you know, they had done lots of um, accessibility things in there and they knew they needed to do more. Um, and that was one of the initiatives that they started while I was working there was the uh, inclusion and in veterans, uh, disability, uh, disability inclusion and in veterans. But when I would go wash my hands, when I would go to the bathroom and have to wash my hands, I couldn't reach the soap dispensers in the bathrooms because the sinks were so deep and the, the things were mounted up against the, the soap dispenser were mounted against the wall and my arms were so short, I couldn't reach them. And so I ended up calling out the entire company and saying, you know, hey, kudos to you for everything you've done. I'm like, but I can't reach the soap dispensers in the bathroom. So despite what we always try and do, there, this dwarfism sort of just shows up as this, uh, and disability in general, uh, if you want to paint a broader picture, is one of the last ones at the table in terms of diversity and inclusion. Just, uh, it's it just, it's hard to think about. We just get overlooked. Uh, it's, it's something that I fight for very hard uh, to be included, uh, again, included uh, in the conversations of. So it's fair to say you're a member of a minority group, but it, you may not often be recognized as being a member of a minority group. Um, yeah, it's it's not. I mean, it's part of the disability group. It's we kind of fall into that category. But I I always joke that you know when I um I I'm a I'm a middle aged white man, so that that takes me out of diversity and inclusion right away. Or it doesn't make you a minority by any means. But then you know when I go into a, a middle aged white man neighborhood, I'm oftentimes the only one who looks like me. Uh, because of my stature. And then you start going into different ethnic neighborhoods or racial neighborhoods. Uh, and then you're definitely the only one who looks like you. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's just one of those ones that really, it's, it's hard to see. But, but every now and again, I, I get seen the, the way I became part of that diversity and inclusion group at school was someone saw me. Someone saw something on TV and realized like, oh, wow, like you must go through, you go through some things that uh, we don't have any idea what they are. And so could you bring that perspective to the table? And I think that's ultimately what every diversity and inclusion group needs is multiple perspectives. Uh, and if it's not someone with dwarfism because they don't exist in that group or organization, then it should be someone with a disability that can speak to the disability community and accessibility and things like that. And we have problems with language and, you know, words and relationships and being overlooked and all the, all the things that every other racial and ethnic group have issues with, we end up having those issues as well, despite being not necessarily diverse or worried about being included, so. There are many people who have embers of service to glow within them. Some people have ignited theirs into, I'm going to call a blazing fire. You're someone who I believe has a blazing fire within you to serve others. Tell us about that blazing fire. 
Yeah, it was it was lit a long time ago, and it you know every, every now and again it, it comes burning out, and then I I get to work really hard, and I get I get to zip along and make positive change in the world, and then uh, and, and I guess that blazing fire was lit by being curious. Uh, so I've always I've always heard things, and I've always wondered like why or what what why is that that way or and that that kind of went with the um. The, the tours that we do for third graders in, in the community here, uh, kind of teaching them why Columbus is the city that people from all over the world come visit. I was very curious on why it had stopped. I was curious what, what, what was the hit, what was the roadblock that stopped it from happening again? And what could we do to make it happen? And so that became a, a service initiative of the school foundation to say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if these kids knew why their community was this cool place or why it was famous or why it was in books before they went away and left the community? And so that, and then the dwarfism stuff, I'm always just, I'm always willing to just jump in head first. Uh, and so that got lit however long ago. Uh, and, it's, and it really got lit 15 years ago when my first child, our first child was born. Because then I knew I was an agent of change uh, and an agent of service to a broader, to a bigger, a bigger cause. I mean, I wasn't just self-serving myself. I wasn't just serving myself and my uh, community and my people. I was serving uh, another, a future generation uh, yeah. of, of, a per, of a person with dwarfism. And that person was my child. And now we've got two kids now, and both of them have provided that, that fire uh, that burning fire that's that's there. So it's nice when the universe you you are part of that 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 fan, right? That when the flame gets fanned, right, it burns a little bright, brighter and yes. a little higher. And yes. your your inviting me here has been is part of that. And the universe has been kind enough. Uh, and if you listen to the universe, um, then it'll tell you when you should really stoke that fire. And and now is one of those times. And there is a listener right now who's listening to this conversation, and they're stoked right now by what they hear. How could somebody learn more from you, Ethan? Uh, how can they learn more from me? They could contact me, and I would be happy to answer questions. I'd be happy to get on the phone and have a conversation about any of the things we've talked about today. My LinkedIn profile is about the only um, social media place that I'm able to be found. Uh, I've gotten off of uh, the other ones just because of uh, difference of opinion, I guess, uh, between that that shows up there. And so, yeah, LinkedIn, they could find me under Ethan, E-T-H-A-N, and then C-R-O-U-G-H. So I'm, I'm there. They can find me. There should be a picture. Uh, I should look like this or sound like this, or um, it should have something about dwarfism on it. I don't think there are any dummy accounts, but yeah, I'd be happy to continue this conversation if their fire is lit about public speaking, about Toastmasters, about Cummins, about dwarfism, about diversity and inclusion. Yeah, there's a handful of things I'd be happy to talk about. And I can picture you on a stage giving a keynote speech on diversity and inclusion in the future. Oh, I hope so. I really do. Uh, that's uh, that would be a, a lot of fun, and I think I'm going to get there. I think I, I think I can get there. I just it's going to take a little time because my teaching uh, swallows up a huge amount of time, and I realize that next summer uh, 
I'll, I'll have a little bit more in place to go to jump off on before summer actually right when summer starts versus now we've got about a week or two left of summer and then and then we'll see you know I, I can probably fit some things in during the fall and the winter but I I would love to Keith I, I really getting up on stage to me is one of the most fulfilling satisfying places to be in my life so uh, I'm trying to figure out how to do that right now so again uh, the ember is lit and uh, burning up and so we'll see how that goes. And I've watched you before on a stage, and I can say that you are an inspiration to watch. Oh, thanks. I look forward to the future opportunities. To yeah, do this. thanks. Yeah, I and appreciate I'll, it. I will include in the show notes your LinkedIn profile so people can easily find you. And also, if you want to share an email address, I'd be happy to share that too. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, Gmail does a pretty good job filtering everything. So, um, yeah, they can have my email address and they can email me or they can find me on LinkedIn. Either one. Excellent. Yeah, it's great. But yeah, thanks, Keith. You've been a uh, you have always been a, a great supporter and a great a great uh, source of positive energy toward me uh, in terms of speaking and, and what I can do on stage. And because oftentimes I'll, I'll forget what I've said or, or I'll forget what I've done. And uh, it's nice to be reminded that there's talent there and sometimes I forget but that's just my own head getting in the way. So uh, it's nice when someone kind of pushes that aside and says, no, 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 really go do, go do so. And if you are listening right now and you're one of the people that let things get in the way, then reach out to Ethan, have a conversation with him. Thank you so much, Ethan. I appreciate you. Thank it's you, been Ethan. Great. I appreciate you. Yeah, it has been. Thanks. And thank you for listening. I look forward to seeing you next week on Embers and Wind. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Embers and Wind. If you enjoyed today, please come back next week. Please also share this episode with a friend. If you've not already subscribed to Embers and Wind, rated this podcast, and written a review, please do this now. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach me directly at embersandwind.net. Thank you again for joining us.